You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Time of year is here again. Fantastic Fest, which, you know, last year was a little disappointing since we could only do stuff from our homes digitally. But this year, with the advent of the vaccine and very paying very close attention to the administration of Fantastic Fest that everyone who's allowed in the building or near the building has, in fact, been vaccinated. Fantastic Fest continues in a lessened, if not still much bigger than last year sort of way. And by lessened, I mean there's lesser, less movies than there were, not lesser movies. But I'm here with some of my team who's at Fantastic Fest this year to talk about said movies. I'm joining me is Alan. Hello, hello. Drew. Hello. So fun to be back this year. And I am Chris. It was, man, it just, I almost felt like crying right when I walked up and saw like people from out of town who were there. I was like, oh, I miss you. Yeah. <laughs> just being back in, yeah. Last year, I think I did like three at home screenings, which was fun. Um, but it was not, not nearly the same feeling, you know, no. coming out of the movies and seeing like people go talk about stuff. It's so great. Oh, completely. Uh, and we did, in fact, get some pretty good movies this year so far. The festival's not even over yet. We've got uh, today or tonight's movies and then tomorrow's before we really know what our absolute favorites of the festival were, which is to say they're still actually putting digital stuff online as well. So I will have basically another two weeks even after the festival's over to watch stuff at FF at home. There's so to... many digital titles. It's amazing. Oh, just yeah. I was going to so ask, are both of y'all doing the FF at home? Yeah, y'all, well, are y'all gonna watch them? They they kind of basically set it up from the beginning for press, where we could see all that stuff. Oh, like gotcha. two days before the fast, and we'll continue on. But you know, yes, is the answer you're looking for. <laughs> Just gonna keep watching movies until I fall over completely and die. Yeah, that's pretty much the plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether we're talking about Fantastic Fest or not, but we are talking about yeah. Fantastic Fest <laughs> here. And let's start with, yes, we're going to launch with one of the big movies, one of the ones everybody has been talking about because it was a, premiered at Fantastic Fest as a secret screening. So we did not know until we got in there that the secret screening was going to be Last Night in Soho, the new film by Edgar Wright, starring Thomasin McKenzie, Anna Taylor-Joy, Matt, Matt Smith, and most notably for me, I which I just think is really cool, is uh, Diana Rigg playing the last role before she died that I was appreciated the fact we got to see Edgar Wright, who was there actually in person, actually talk about some of the stories, including, you know, because a lot of this is like sets that took place in the 60s when she was a young swinging 20-something, and her going on these sets and just being feeling transformed by like, so, oh my God, it's like, I'm like a, a fucking like little girl, little teenager girl again, like seeing it look mm-hmm. so real. I'm like, oh, that's, that's so cool that that was her last film experience for Edgar Wright. Like he really got emotional talking about her too. Oh yeah, most definitely. I would, I know I would. Um, but the story is the first 
Okay, so this has been getting mixed reviews, which is to say it's still largely positive, but like some people were not into this as much, and every negative review I saw referred to this as a failed spoof. And I'm like, what fucking movie did you watch? <laughs> I get that most of Edgar Wright's other stuff are either a spoof or a tongue-in-cheek tribute to a particular film genre or sub-sub-genre. This is not. <laughs> yeah, if you're, I mean, go ahead. If, he, and, uh, you know, please, go ahead. Jim. Well, if you're expecting like a more, you know, a film like Shaun of the Dead, I mean, this is much more adult, um, you know, just seeing what he's done, you know, with the Sparks documentary, everything else. I think he's learned a lot more editing techniques, and but he still does wipes and dissolves. You can still see the style and the flourishes behind it, but he takes, you know, his filmmaking to a totally new level. So if you're looking for a spoof or something, you're not going to get that. No, I think he's making a straight up psychological thriller here slash straight up horror film at points as the yeah. story follows Thomas and McKenzie, who is quickly turning into my, one of my favorite new young actresses, despite the fact she was one of the leads in old. But if you look back to my review, I did in fact say she's the only thing I like about that movie. Man, I liked old. I ride for old. Oh. <laughs> Alan, Alan, I'm, I might have to edit that out just so people don't lose respect for you. No, don't edit, like put some reverb on it, make it resonate through the earways. Just get it real big. <laughs> anyway, uh, she she plays Eloise, who is, we see, modern day. She's, like, really into fashion, but she's living outside of London. She gets into fashion school. It becomes clear from the beginning that she has, at least in her head, has some sort of psychic abilities. Like, she keeps seeing in mirrors her mother, who's been dead for years and years, uh, you know, appearing there, not in a creepy way, but in a sort of, I'm smiling in approval sort of way. But she goes gets the the fashion school to london finds it like everyone there is kind of a pretentious horrible person as you might expect but finds her way when she finally gets out of the dorms which is what i recommend to absolutely anyone who goes off to college in another place get out of the dorms and find off-campus housing uh unless it's this particular house in london because when she gets there which seems all great first night of sleep she starts having dreams that are super 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 realistic dreams where she is transformed into anna anya taylor joy in the 60s who was a wannabe singer who finds a manager is Matt Smith, who just seems too charming and effective to be real. And sure enough, because the truth is, like a lot of managers at this particular period of time, and maybe even at this particular period of time, are really abusive pieces of shit. Uh, <laughs> as this dream with all these 60s fashions swirling around in her head and just this whirlwind romance after night after night starts becoming a straight-up horror movie nightmare experience. And that world of her dreams starts to intrude more and more into her real world. And she realizes, I think something is pushing me to solve a mystery. Which indeed, of course, it is. Because if you watch almost any ghost movie, somebody's being pushed to solve a mystery. Okay, so it <laughs> falls into the the idea of like a lot of the formula of ghost movies it's just got so much absolute style and fashion and something that's just so unique to this genre around it done so well that what formula that is there you don't even think about it yeah and i would say like it's plays to edgar wright's strengths like i can see the complaints from people expecting more of like Oh, there's going to be his version of a ghost story, the way Shaun of the Dead's version of a zombie or hot fuzz of a cop movie slash cult movie thing. And with those, it's going like, these are the genre conventions and we're going to like turn them on their head and play real big and broad with them. Where I think in this, like he still has those genre conventions and he still turns them on the, on the head a little bit here and there. Yeah. Like he plays with those expectations, but it's done with a much like subtler, it's a lot more subtle the way he will 
turn things slightly to make it feel like more fresh and original. Cause all the things of a ghost story are here, right? There's like the mean kids. She's the outcast. There's the ghost. There's a mystery. There's like all the things you expect to see, but things kind of turn in just slightly varied directions that you, that you don't usually get at a ghost story. The scares come from slightly different places. Um, that it makes it feel really fresh and original. Like it's that Edgar Wright like touch and his style is like prevalent throughout. Like you were talking about earlier about his editing techniques and how what he just does with the camera. And it is the most inventive camera work he's done, I think, in this movie. It's so exciting to watch. Like every frame is beautiful. Yeah. And just like, always some sort of camera trick in it, or just like all sorts of he's pulling out all the stops here. And he said in person like how much of it was done practically with like the mirror effects and how they pulled off almost all of the in camera. It's really impressive. Drew, you look like you're about to say something. Oh, oh did he freeze did up? Did we lose him? Oh, yeah, Drew, I, was, you there? I lost you guys for a second. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. So we're, I, don't uh, why, I don't know what's going on. With by the all means, uh, uh, give us your dissertation. I see you've already published your review on uh, uh, dread central as well. Oh, I, I didn't do one for last night in Soho because we did. We had we had a, a, a review up for at, um, from Tiff okay. um, that was already was already done. Uh, I would have loved to have reviewed it, um, but yeah, I mean, I think probably the closest if you're going to compare it to any one of his films before, it's going to be Hot Fuzz because at least there's that central mystery and but it doesn't really feel like an Agatha Christie take at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, all the little in camera effects that he's doing is they're really incredible to to watch and you feel completely transported in this movie. I mean, the, when, she, when she first kind of goes back to the 60s and becomes Annie Taylor-Joy and walks into the club for her first time, it's it's really electric. You feel the music, especially in the theater, um, and you feel transported, just like you kind of do feeling transported in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It has that kind of feel to it. Um, but you still get all the playfulness of Edgar Wright. Um, but it's a lot It's it's a lot more of a, it's a darker film, um, than anything else he's done before. And I think if anything, there's some of the flourishes and things that he's, he's doing. Maybe it's a little bit too much at times. There's a, by the end of the movie, I really felt almost assaulted in a way. I mean, there was just so much to watch, so much to take in. Um, so it was kind of an assault on the senses for me a little bit. Um, but I actually loved how it became more intimate at the end when the mystery starts getting revealed and you start seeing the connection that's, that's happening. And then you really get moments where Diana Rigg really shines and it's such a great role for her to do um as as her her last her last film you know i think one of the things that makes the you know the obvious social commentary part of this which is a big part of it the idea that like this thing that happened in the past has to do with uh you know abuse in the entertainment industry which is still very prevalent is that in the third act there's a point you think they're going to fuck it up like you're like watching like oh man come on please really you're gonna you can't make that i get that you need to solve the mystery but that would be a major you're like kind of undercutting your entire point if that's the way you decide to go with it and then he like at the last minute like pulls away the curtain goes no i knew the whole time what i was doing it's still fine <laughs> and i was like okay all right i feel good about it then and i think you spend it makes you really focus on that aspect of it because it concerns you that he's not going to get it right as so many other movies don't yeah, there's but definitely anyway, some, there's, there's there's some great mo moments of horror in it too. I mean, that really surprised me. Um, you know, when the past really starts kind of literally reaching out and and starting to grab her. Um, and I did really love what Edgar Wright said uh, at the Q and A uh, that there's kind of two different kinds of people: people that walk down the street and they don't think about the past, and then people that do. And I'm one of the people that definitely does. 
it's even walk, I was in London not too long ago and walking down Soho, you do feel like that. You do, you do look at these buildings and wonder what was, what was there originally. And you, you feel the history of the place. Um, and you almost feel it more because you see so many people walking by that are completely oblivious to it. So it's really nice to see that kind of marriage. And instead of just doing uh, flashbacks to see it done in Edgar Wright's style makes it really unique. Agreed. Well, let's move to our second film we're going to talk about on this show, which is The Innocence. This one kind of came out of nowhere for us, at least. Um, I know it wasn't on my radar whatsoever, but it just one of those ones that sounded like it could be interesting that I signed up for. And when the host who showed up the programmer to introduce it, she said, this is actually my favorite film of the year. That's strong words to say about anything. So was very curious to see what we were going to get. And what we get is this French film. That is by director Eskil Voigt, uh, Voigt, I think it's Voigt, like Voigt Kampf, I think, I don't know, but no uh, idea. <laughs> who is better known for working as the writer with another director on quite a few films, um, Joachim Trier, in fact, one of the A24 films that is, uh, they still haven't yet to announce a, a release date, The Worst Person in the World is the two of them working together, but that, that's been around a lot lately, but I was like, okay, so this is directed by Voigt. And it features a cast of largely children underneath the age of 12 years old. Most of them closer to like six, seven, eight. Like the oldest kid is 12. <laughs> um, and it's a straight up, very disturbing horror thriller. How do you do that with kids? Well, first you put up a warning saying if you are really sensitive to children or animals getting killed, absolutely do not watch this movie because you will be very, very triggered. Very that being, upset. That being said, this was one of the best movies I saw at Fantastic Fest. It features in Norway where people live in these huge tower blocks, um, but, you know, with areas between it with forest and what have you. And we meet this girl, Ida, who's just moved into this complex and she, with her parents and her very severely autistic elder sister, and I mean like autistic to the point where she can't talk, she can just moan and she rocks. And I mean, she's like at the absolute highest level of that. And she meets somebody in the complex who was a kid named Ben, who, you know, it seems like, hey, they're going to be friends. And we're a little worried from the beginning about Ida because the movie makes clear right from the beginning. She's that kind of kid that is starting to experiment with sadism. And I think most children to some level or another experiment with sadism at a, around that age and either go have a just very disturbing experience, you know, which can be as simple as like, I stepped on that earthworm to see what happened. And it set a sense of horror cur coursing through my soul. And I decided I don't like hurting other living beings or, or it takes a little bit longer. It looks like with Ida, it might <laughs> take a little bit longer. She likes to pinch her autistic sister and, and step on various uh, small level living things, nothing to the, the point of animal but ben appears to be a little bit different at first he seems cool he does the thing another little lot of kids do pretend they're magicians as he shows a trick with a bottle cap that he can make drop and make fly away that you're reasonably sure he's just blowing on to make it happen right but now as it goes along not only does it turn out ben is a real proper little psycho kid who likes to hurt living creatures including other kids but that he has intense level psychic powers, as it turns out, does another little girl who lives in the complex. The thing is, there's some weird relationship between these two kids and then the autistic sister who seems to be some sort of fulcrum for their powers. It's never entirely clear, but that's on purpose. 
and helps with the mystery of the whole thing. But I can tell you, I know Alan and I both thought this was thrilling, exciting, chilling, and really fantastic. Yeah, for sure. It's, I don't know if it's my favorite of the fest so far, but it's definitely top three. Um, it's one of the very few films at the slate that they put a second screening of too. Like almost all the films are only playing one time. And I think this, after the first screening, people really, really loved it. And they announced either the day of or the next day, they announced more screenings of a couple movies. And this was one of them. And it was, happened at a time slot where I wasn't thrilled about the movie I wasn't going to go see. And I was like, Oh, Oh, I've heard a lot of good stuff about this when they're really late. I remember before I went in, I even asked Chris, like, is this like a fun, crazy horror movie? Or is this like kind of a slower, scary one? And he was like, it's pretty intense. It's a scary, like legit scary one. And I was sort of disappointed because I was kind of tired. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to try this out. First 10 minutes, I'm up. Like, I am, like, in it. It, like, really draws you in. Like, the central, just the characterizations of the little kids and the performances they give right off the bat really draws you in. And then as this mystery unfolds, where it's just, like, these kids going out and playing in the woods, like, being kids, except some of them happen to have some sort of psychic power. Um, and they sort of delve into the inner workings of how it works, but not enough where it becomes one of those annoying like, explain away lines of dialogue and never gets into that world. It just lets you live in the mystery. Um, the same way these kids don't really know how it works. They're just kids experiencing this thing. Um, but yeah, the intensity levels early on, you feel the dread and you understand that like any of these kids are at danger at any point. Um, and it's, it really is my favorite depiction of like psychic ability I've seen in a really long time. Yeah. So often in these like movies where psychic kids or people have powers that either like mess with minds or move things around, it's always intense look, move your head, things fly. Uh, the inner workings of kids being able to talk through their minds to each other is always, it's cliched. It's boring. But in this movie, they do it in ways that I've never seen before. And yeah. it's really interesting. And it just, it builds that mystery more where you want to like, it really pulls you into the movie. It's um, very naturalistic, which we're not used to seeing with movies dealing with special powers or what have you. Mm-hmm. I mean, even like the deaths, the movie's smart enough to when something happens, it's shocking. It's, there's no score stingers or anything. It's just, it, that's, oh shit, that just happened to leave you wondering, did, did that just happen? You yeah. know, cause some of them are like, holy fuck. <laughs> like, I can't yeah. believe the movie just went there. I know. And when the deaths happen, they're not played. Yeah. Like you said, there's no score hit. There's no big thing. It plays like you could hear it and you could like feel it. It hurts. Um, it's really, really good. I was pretty blown away by it. Really happy. I like, uh, they added that second screening. I was able to see it. And it's so interesting that it really is about that period that's not really explored very often because no one wants to discuss children not being pure paradigms of innocence. The fact that there is a point where children are little narcissistic, ego-driven bastards that like to hurt things. <laughs> and yeah. this is kind of about that point that goes whether what sort of person they end up being in life yeah. and whether they, they learn empathy and compassion or they don't. And it's really completely in a very smart and touching way about that. And I admit, I got emotional at points of this. I thought it was terrific. Sure. Uh, let's move on to our third film, which Drew and I saw, which is beyond the infinite two minutes. I actually, I saw this one before the festival started on a screener. To be fair, it's not the sort of film that really requires you to see it in a theater. I mean, it's not like that type of movie. What it is, is a, Super clever 
little, I call it structural comedy, sort of the way that, in a way, comparable to One Cut of the Dead, if you saw that Japanese movie. This particular Japanese movie, doing something completely different with structure, is a time travel comedy that was created with just using iPhones, a cast that mainly are just a, a comedy theater troupe, a couple Apple TVs, and some of the most clever editing I have seen in any movie ever. I'm like, fucking... Uh, Christopher Nolan, watch out for these guys because <laughs> it's just like, but on a super, super budget. It's like a Roger Corman look at a, at Tenet. But the idea being that this one character, he w- lives upstairs from the restaurant he owns and he hears a voice from the, his monitor and he looks over and it's him on the monitor going, hey, and explains to him that, look, uh, the TV downstairs, the, the monitor downstairs in the restaurant is two minutes in the future from this monitor upstairs and is able to prove to him immediately by saying, well, where, oh, that's true. Where's my guitar pick? He's like, it's under the rug. And it is. He's like, all right, you need to hurry downstairs so you can tell yourself because there's only two minutes there to you can tell yourself this. And the movie has this thing as more and more characters come into it, become aware of this, get caught up in these loops. And they even try other tricks with like where they're like, well, let's what happens if we put the two monitors facing each other? Then you get this causal loop of you can keep seeing more monitors and each one is two further minutes back in the future. I thought this was brilliant. I laughed with joy multiple times watching this film just because of how clever and funny it was. Yeah, there really is like this kind of infinity lighting effect that they do so well with all the different laptops. And even just, just the sound, how they managed to do that as well. If you think about it, I mean, the, the feedback loops and stuff that probably would have happened when they were filming it. And I kept looking for, for a cut and I think it's pretty much one take and it's only about 70 minutes long. So it seems doable, but I can't imagine. I want somebody to have, you know, counted their steps, like how many times they're actually going up those stairs, you know, back and forth the entire time. They must have been exhausted. But it's nice when other characters start start coming into it, even when money inevitably comes into play. They're like, how can we use this somehow to, to get rich, you know, or at least to, you know, see if it's possible? Because um, that's really why anybody wants to do any sort of t- time traveling in the first place is to try to, like, you know, bet on the horses. Um, <laughs> or or kill b- baby Hitler. True. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd bet on the horses first. Then I'd have more money to kill Hitler. That's true. Um, but I think it's, I mean, for the, for the budget, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it's so inventive. And I had heard things out of it, for, you know, from uh, Fantasia. Um, and it was starting to get some buzz then. So I'm, 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 I didn't hear too much about it at Fantastic Fest. So I'm really glad that you, you loved it so much. Yeah. This, um, just made me happy. It was the second thing I think I watched for Fantastic Fest this year. Like I said, about the week before the festival started. And I just, I, I've never really seen anything like it. Uh, if it, if one thing could have broken this movie, like completely broken it, it's like such a delicate house of cards that if they had made one big misstep, it would have made the whole movie not work. But they don't. <laughs> it's just a masterpiece of blocking and editing that it works as well as it does. I mean, I I still can't figure it out. There's some stuff during the credits that shows you some of how they did what they did. but And even that, I was like, wait, what did you do? Because it's very complex on the level of thinking how you could do it. There's points where a character is talking to themselves on the TV, who is talking to themselves on the TV, who is talking to themselves on the TV, you know, and then they're in live there too. Like it's the future's 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 future as one character says at one point. So yeah, it does get very complex and it gets, but it never to the point where like as a viewer outside of trying to understand how they did it, you're confused. You get it. You just, 
trying to keep up with it because it moves so fast and is a genuinely really, really funny, uh, even with an unexpected sort of twist ending to it that's kind of delightful. Yeah, I think this was, I think it's Yunta Yamaguchi, is, uh, it was refer- the first uh, film, um, mm-hmm. I think, out of the gates. That's pretty, pretty impressive. And it really is kind of a dorky romance, really. I mean, it's, it's, but with a time loop device, you know, um, used to kind of allow for an extraordinary circumstance where two people can just kind of fall for each other. And I don't know where to recommend you can see it. I think this is going to be at FF at home. Honestly, if it is, that was worth getting a badge for it alone, in my opinion, amongst the many other films there. But we are going to stop this first edition of our podcast here, and we will be back tomorrow with another Fantastic Fest, one of us at Fantastic Fest series of reviews. We're going to have a whole bunch of them this year with stuff that we cover. We looked at, there's so much more good stuff uh, left to talk about. You can, of course, see Drew at Dread Central, uh, where his writings uh, pro- continue to proliferate there, despite make, letting me know, basically, that his managers can be bribed easily. And Alan Galinsky, <laughs> who you can see around town if you live in Austin with his band. Uh, what is it again? The Delicate Boys. The Delicate Boys. I just don't think delicacy when I think of you. Maybe I <laughs> don't have enough of the Hannibal Lecter in my soul. Anyway, we'll be back uh, tomorrow with more. <laughs>